So we got some snow today. <laughs> There's something really quite comfy about being tucked into Insight Meditation Society with a snow blizzard outside and knowing that you don't have to go anywhere, get in your cars. I had the thought today about uh, the people on the second day of a retreat who think about leaving. And <laughs> that the gods really aren't with those people today. <laughs> so it's really nice to be able to be here kind of in this cozy place uh, sharing the Dharma this evening. So what I'd like to talk about is equanimity and kind of talk around that theme this evening. On the first days of a retreat, we can find that we're often confronted with our ideas about meditation, what we carry with us into the retreat about what we think meditation is or uh, how we think our meditation should be going. And this can happen at many different levels of our practice, no matter who you are and how long you've been practicing. If you're relatively new, you'll bring ideas uh, that, that you've heard from other people, what they've shared about their own meditation, or you'll bring in ideas about what you've read. And since there's such a vast, complex world of information out there about spirituality and meditation, Unless we've had our own personal experiences, our direct experiences of these things, it's so easy to use these ideas to uh, create more confusion, distortion. We can easily be misled in our practice if we uh, don't hold these ideas very lightly. Even if we are older practitioners, we can be bringing in our memories of our past retreats and compare our past retreats with how things are going now. Uh, or we can uh, be bringing along our interpretations of what we think the teachings mean or how the teachings have been uh, given and, and, and bringing those to our experience and causing some uh, dissonance or agitation within ourselves. But we can easily accumulate these ideas about how we would like our experience to be. And this often conflicts with the way it actually is. We'd like our meditation experience to be easy. We'd like it to be comfortable. We'd like it to be pleasurable, <laughs> somewhat blissful at times. You know, we'd like to have a certain amount of clarity, uh, not much dullness, certain amount of focus in our mind. We have certain ideas and perhaps sometimes expectation how we'd like uh, our meditation to go. And yet, particularly in the first couple days of a retreat, we find that our experience is quite different. We might be quite sleepy or agitated, restless. We might be feeling a lot of pain 
in our bodies, particularly if we're not used to sitting for long periods at a time and feel the agitation that comes about with this pain. But we find that the present moment reality, which Rodney last night referred to as the fact, the present moment reality, conflicts with our running commentary about how we think it should be, or how we think it could be, or maybe how we think it must be. You know, how, depending how strongly we start making demands on ourselves in our meditation. Sometimes these ideas that we carry often happen unconsciously. We don't really see the images that we're holding in our mind. Rather, what we experience is, is, is the tension that comes from the judgment that we're holding towards ourselves, the judgment that comes through the expectation um, or the idea of what should be happening, how I should be. We can feel that tension and may not understand why we are actually experiencing that tension, that agitation, that constriction within ourselves. We have an image. We think that our image is valid about how we should be. We judge ourselves, and we believe that we have a valid reason to judge ourselves. I should be fill in the blank. I should be able to stay with my breath or be able to find some solution not to feel the pain in my body. Or I should be able to feel uh, interested in going for the fifth walking meditation in the day. Or I should be able to um, enjoy sitting and uh, having a rice cake for tea. Um, you know, it's, it's ways that we start to uh, build up that image that we have of ourselves, but yet we miss the judgment. We think we have a valid reason to judge ourselves, and we don't see that the judgment is actually something that we can be embracing in our meditation itself, that this is also something valid to be examining, something to look at, something to pay attention to. But we so easily can't skip over that. It's like we, we slip over that particular manifestation in the mind and think that something else should be happening, and we don't actually catch the judgment that's there that is also causing the tension and the agitation. We don't experience this gap that we're setting up within our own minds about how things actually are and how we think they should be, and that gap itself carries a lot of the agitation. Perhaps we haven't really examined our assumptions well enough about what it is that we're actually carrying here. It's impossible to have an image of our practice and become that image, try to fit ourselves into that image of our practice. Because this is going through the mind. It's like we're, we have an idea in our mind and we're trying to kind of make ourselves into this image in our mind. We're not going through our heart. Going through the heart means allowing something to grow much more naturally, more organically. 
it's like, example that came to me is like an oak tree sapling, having a little oak tree sapling and wishing it were a giant sequoia sapling. As if I was that giant sequoia sapling, then I would have the desired qualities that I needed to proceed in life. That being uh, an oak tree sapling isn't enough. You know, like we make these strange comparisons in our own mind about uh, ourselves and our experience. It's very easy to have spiritual images. You know, again, it's again, not something that we need to judge ourselves for or condemn ourselves for. They're, they come very, very naturally. In fact, it's a necessary stage in our practice to have these images, these aspirations, these projections. And yet, unless they're seen clearly, seen well, they can also become a trap in our spiritual life. Our spiritual images are our, our projections of our hopes and our dreams that we have about what's possible. And we project them onto people, onto things, onto the teachings, onto the tradition. For example, like the, the Buddha statue that is here in the hall, we can easily project onto the statue how we're supposed to be in our meditation. You know, we look up there and, you know, there's this solid continuity of stillness with a, I think it has a slight smile, you know, which jo shows some, some joy arising, you know, and, and some sense that that's how we should also be in our practice. Or we may project onto, you may project onto us here at the teachers about how we are up here sitting and what's happening for us in our meditation when we sit up here or any great figure that we hold with great esteem. And we might even be attracted to meditation because of what we imagine is possible through the meditation, through the teachings. But we may be imagining that there is some way that we can be in our experience where we're untouched by life almost as if there's some kind of numb state which we reach in our meditation where we don't feel anything, where we're not bothered by anything. Therefore, there's this state of calm and ease and bliss. But I really wonder if this is what the meditation is about. It seems more that when we think of the meditation like this, it's uh, almost as if we're, we're looking to the meditation for some kind of escape from ourselves or escape from life, uh, looking for some kind of safe harbor so that we don't actually have to be engaged in life, touched by life. We might ask ourselves what we really want from meditation. What is it that we're trying to get? What do we think is going to happen here for us? There are specialized states that can be reached in meditation where we are untouched by the world. And there are some types of meditation that actually encourage this, that encourage reaching these kind of rarefied or specialized states. 
and they come through developing uh, states, refined states of concentration, which can happen through long, intensive retreats for some people. And through this development of concentration, where the mind stays very uh, uh, focused on one point, one object, and becomes very stabilized in that state of mind, it is possible to temporarily be cut off from the movement of mind, from feeling from life. It can really come into some very rarefied states. And coming into those states of concentration is, uh, uh, there is certainly is a feeling of relief, uh, uh, a great sigh of relief, and it can feel quite blissful and quite rapturous. But the difficulty is that when we come to the end of this, that particular form of practice and we move out of those states of concentration and we move back into our usual way of functioning in the world, then that feeling disappears, the world comes back, and here we are, having to deal with the same things that we've always had to deal with. There's this one story that uh, one of my teachers in India loved to tell my teacher, Punjaji, who I spent a number of months with. He loved to tell this story about this king, this king who uh, was wandering around India. He decided to uh, renounce his life for some time, and he was wandering around, and he came to this uh, village and knocked on the door and went into a home of a peasant couple. And he uh, was, was spending a little time with this couple, and he asked them for a glass of water. And as the wife was bringing the king the glass of water, he dropped into a, a deep state of samadhi, of concentration. And he seemed to stay in that for some time, a few hours went by, and the evening went by, the next day went by, and the king was still in this state of uh, samadhi. Another day went by, four days went by, a week went by, and he's just sitting there, you know, in just this, this very blissful, rapturous state. And then one moment, he opened his eyes, the couple was still there, and the first thing he said is, where's my glass of water? So the world comes back. <laughs> In some ways, time stops. You can enter into a state, but yet we're back. And when the world comes back, what we mean by the world is birth, aging, sickness, and death. The wheel of life, the wheel of samsara, it's called birth, aging, sickness, and death. And that's what we have to deal with our economic challenges, family pressures, relationships, the patterns and the strength of our own conditioning. And that's what we come here with. That's what we have. You know, we can keep talking up here about the concepts of equanimity and non-attachment and patience and uh, compassion, loving-kindness, unconditional acceptance. But what do we do when we feel the fear, the jealousy, the rage? 
What do we do with that, the, the human conditions when they arise for us, which are very uh, natural, very uh, real for us? Because sometimes we, we so easily could want to bypass this human condition that we find ourselves in. For example, once there was a man in a group who said, if I'm centered, I won't have strong reactions. I won't have all this fear and rage. What can I do so this won't happen? It's like, what can I, how, how do I get centered so this won't happen? But in a way, I think it's asking the wrong question. The, it's, a, it's like asking the question that Steve Martin asked um, when somebody asked him, how do I become a millionaire? He said, well, first you get a million dollars, then. You know, it's like, <laughs> we're not there yet. So we can't say, well, what do I do to get centered? I mean, what, what's really happening for us? You know, for, for, for this man, you know, there was, there was rage, fear. Asking about getting centered is almost too big of a leap again. It's like, it's like we, we miss something there. We, we, we want to go from uh, the first floor to the uh, top floor of the building without going to the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth floor. We have to visit all the rooms, it seems. There was a woman today who was um, talking about some resistance that she was having to doing walking meditation inside the building. And she was very much uh, aware of her resistance and said, what can I do so that I can do my walking meditation and won't be so resistant? And in a way, again, it's the same thing. It's, we don't, it's the walking meditation in this case isn't what's important. Because what's arising, what's immediate, what's present reality is the resistance. And so we don't, we can't skip over that. It's like, what do we do with the resistance? How do we be with that? How do we embrace that? How do we hold that? And let that be enough. That's what's happening. And the wonderful thing about the Buddha's teachings and about this path that we're involved in is that nothing needs to be different. I find that to be such a relief that nothing needs to be different, that I don't need to be anywhere else than where I am, that this is enough. And so again and again, we say in the practice to start where you are. Start where you are, not to leap over anything. And starting where you are means to pay attention to what's happening as much as you possibly can, to open to, to embrace the present moment experience in its, manifest, in its subtle and sometimes gross manifestation, just as it is. Because the mind so easily wants to slip off into something else, usually fabricated by some kind of memory or some kind of fantasy we have about ourselves and the situation. We just, the mind just slips. I think that's a really good metaphor for the experience of, of 
shifting out of present moment. And so, so again and again, the, the technique, the, the resources that we're using here just bring us back, bring us back wholeheartedly just to this moment, just as it is. We don't need to change the way we are, the experience that we're having. Rather, through these practices and teachings, we're learning new and resourceful ways to respond to what is happening, to what's arising, so that we're not so identified, not so bound up, not so caught in our mind by what's happening. The practice of not needing anything to be different is the development of equanimity. Is the development of equanimity. Equanimity being accepting what comes and letting go when it leaves. That, that openness, that embracing the conditions of life as they come and as they go. This is really our practice. It's not where we should be now, you know, be able to accept what comes and let go of that when it leaves, but this is our practice. We develop this important quality of equanimity. Equanimity is described as an unconditional allowing Yet at the same time, it's a full engagement with life, with a balance of mind, with composure. This is what the teachings are pointing to. But we have to be careful when we listen. Maybe you can notice how you're listening to see if you're taking in this information as another way to, to compare yourself and then judge yourself. Is it, is it being programmed in a way that it's being used as another way to, to bring pain to yourself from where you are? Because if, if it is, perhaps you could notice that and open and embrace just where you are. Allow that to be okay. Equanimity is an important quality for us to practice, but it is difficult to understand. It's difficult because it's paradoxical. Equanimity points to being detached, yet connected at the same time. And detachment really is this word in uh, Buddhist circles that is very easy to misunderstand. Uh, Joseph Goldstein, the teacher here, calls it finding the passion in dispassion. You know? So we have to kind of play with these words here to, to get some sense of it. It doesn't mean that there's no emotion in our experience, but it means that we're not as identified. We're not as caught up with this strong sense of me or I or the sense of self in the emotions, in our stories that happen in our mind, in our uh, way that we relate to our physical bodies the, through the sensations. We're not, as, we're not as identified with it all. In the classical teachings of equanimity, it's said that what disguises itself as equanimity is indifference. And again, this indifference can look like this 
detachment with connection. But it, we have to be very careful to, again, examine our experience to see what's really happening, to see if there's a way that we are withdrawing from what's happening, that we are, we are not actually that involved with our experience, that we are uh, a bit cool in relationship to our experience. But rather, are we, are we engaged? Are we meeting the moment-to-moment experience of our, of our days as things unfold. Even in the more advanced stages of practice, indifference can disguise itself as equanimity. It's the voice that says, who cares? To be spiritual is to be unattached. What does anything matter anyhow? It's all empty. It's all impersonal. You know, we can so easily begin to throw around these spiritual concepts as if we uh, really understand what they mean, but it just is another way that we disconnect from life, that we withdraw from life. We don't really bring ourselves into engagement with, with people, with situations, with, with the uh, things of life. This voice is one that fears commitment, fears engagement. The spiritual world can seem like a safe haven from the world. Again, this escape. You know? I've seen this when I was in India. Uh, people who uh, spend time around spiritual masters, um, not all people, and I want to be careful that this doesn't sound like a judgment because I don't mean it in that way, but there can sometimes be a way that there can be an aura or an environment of celebration of the kind of the, the, uh, the joy and the ecstasy that one is feeling uh, in that whole uh, community, that environment with gurus. But yet there can be people all around, especially in India, who are deeply suffering, you know, right, in the, you know, right, on, the, right on the street next to the building where we might be spending time, and that goes unnoticed. There's a way that uh, the one turns away in the joy, in the ecstasy, in the uh, celebration. And I see that as a, kind of a, a, as a way of um, cutting off, of not really being open to the, uh, the conditions of life that are around. This indifference can be a temporary sense of peace. Yes, it does give some sense of ease and sense of calm, and yet it still reinforces separation and disconnection through this withdrawal. And I've even seen people who are very active in the world, and it can look like there's connection, but, and yet, but yet there's still a way that there's emotional withdrawal, an emotional disconnection, still an unwillingness to engage, to be, uh, to be intimate with, with life in that way. So when one has true equanimity, this is not a withdrawal of any kind, but it's a wholehearted engagement with life. It's when one is not reactive to the changing conditions of life. Therefore, one is not attached. This, this is really what's meant by detachment. It's, it's non-attachment. Not disconnection, but we're not caught up in demanding, in uh, expecting, in 
uh, grasping onto the conditions of life the way that I want them to be. It's really the equanimity within our mind that allows us to face that which is pleasant without falling into indulgence and attachment. For instance, it's what allows us to go into the, uh, the, the lunch uh, uh, hall, the, the meal hall, and, and face that wonderful food and put it on our plate and watch the food disappear, like I was talking about in the eating meditation today. Watch that food disappear without the attachment of holding on to it or without the indulgence in overstuffing ourselves. That's the equanimity that allows it to, to come and allow it to go when it's past. It's also the equanimity that allows us to face the pain in our, in our own minds without drowning in aversion, in anger, in despair, in deep sorrow. Allows us to turn towards the pain. For example, hearing uh, or perhaps remembering a friend who is dying of cancer and being able to go towards that image, to hold that image in our heart without falling into the anger, into the deep sorrow. This is the equanimity that we develop within our own minds. So it's understanding our relationship to this aversion, to this attachment, to this way that we move, the way the mind moves, that helps us understand transformation that helps us to understand what it means to really transform in our practice. Because what we're, what we're examining, what we're really looking at, is this reactivity. This reactivity, the movements towards the grasping, the attaching onto things on the one hand, and the pushing away the aversion on the other hand, and how we get pulled and pushed and pulled and pushed between these two movements of our mind. But it doesn't mean that I am trying to establish a state where there's no reactivity. Again, we have to be a bit careful how we move with this because we are talking about starting right where we are, that nothing needs to change. We can practice equanimity right here and now without anything being different. And how do we do that? It's by paying attention to what's happening within ourselves with loving attention, with loving attention. That means that we have to pay very close attention to whether we are reacting to our own reactivity. And this is the, an important point that I wanted to bring up here. Because again, it, that can so easily get missed, that layer of our relationship to our own negativity and how we're relating to that. Because it can seem valid. There's a way that we can uh, uh, hold, hold that negativity in our mind as if, of course I should feel this way. You know? But we may not see that we are actually being uh, hurtful in the way that we are talking to ourselves, in the way that we're treating ourselves, in the way that we're holding ourselves in that. So we can pay attention to that one layer 
of watching our reactivity to our reactivity or our judging of our judging. And it can go <laughs> many, many layers. Can be the judging to the judging to the judging. <laughs> you know, as we notice, we just keep stepping back. And it only takes one layer where we of noticing that and stopping that particular response, that reactivity, that begins to weaken that whole pattern. It weakens the whole structure that's holding that pattern together. We have to go in somewhere, in at some point, where, we, where our loving attention, where our compassionate response touches that experience, wherever it is. Even if there is anger and judgment towards that anger and guilt towards ourselves in that anger, but can we see that? And in one instant, just say, all right, I can be gentle to myself. I, I can be kind to myself, even right in this experience. Just takes that one stepping back. I often think of the metaphor of an onion, peeling the onion, just one layer at a time to get to the inner core. In some ways, that's what we're doing here. We're just peeling the onion of our, of our own negativity so that we can just get to the pure inner core. And I don't know if you've ever really looked at an onion when you've chopped it, but right in the middle, it's completely empty. <laughs> you know, there's all these, these layers, these um, skins that are piled up on top of each other, but right in the middle, it's completely empty and pure. So we're just peeling back the layers of the onion here. The Buddha uh, talks about this in, his t in his, uh, the, the, the text that we have on the Buddha's teachings as actually directing equanimity. This paying attention with a loving response, with a compassionate response, is a direction of equanimity. And in the text it says, equanimity, purified, bright, malleable, wieldly, radiant, you know, that, that way, that, 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 the, the brightness of that way of perceiving our experience. He says it's like refined gold. And the simile that's used is when a goldsmith takes gold and refines it in a furnace, it can make any ornament that he wishes. Because the gold is pliable. In that, in that, in that, as we, we direct equanimity to the situation, what's happening is, is what, what that experience is no longer fixed. It's no longer stuck. We're no longer caught by it. But through that direction of the equanimity of the, uh, I might even say, of letting go, the softening of our reactivity, we have more flexibility. There's more opportunity to be pliable, to be malleable. I don't know how to pronounce that word. How do you pronounce that word? Malleable. <laughs> malleable. You know, we can, we, we can play within our own minds. Otherwise, when we get so caught, we get so identified, we get so stuck with the way that we're, we're perceiving, the way we're viewing, the way we're reacting to something, there's not much to do in that. 
And so, so this particular teaching that the Buddha gives is actually directing equanimity into any situation so that we experience a freedom. We experience the play. We're not so bound. We're not so constricted by what's happening. This takes time, takes great care, it takes acceptance. And as we bring this attitude, this way of of being towards ourselves, we find that our places of holding gradually open, they gradually release. And as we open, our energy starts to move. The whole energy, the physical energy, we can experience this as an energetic consequence of this direction. We feel more free within our beings. We don't feel so constricted, so tight, so tense. This requires a great deal of sensitivity towards ourselves, a great deal of awareness. And this is what we're practicing here. Classically, with the practice of equanimity, there is a phrase that we can say to help us come into this place of non-reactivity. And the phrase that's suggested is that It's very simple and one that I really like a lot and have practiced a lot. And it's just that things are as they are. Things are as they are. That no matter how much we may wish things to be different, things are as they are. And that particular phrase has been invaluable for me in my practice in helping me settle into present moment reality, help me to really uh, perhaps unconditionally accept what's going on. Much of my practice in this regard has happened in India because I've spent so much time there, and it's such a difficult place to be. No matter who has been there, um, uh, this this is the response. There's so much, um, so much direct suffering that one comes into contact with that is far beyond anything that I've ever experienced in the West. So my practice, the phrase that I used when I was there is, things are as they are, things are as they are. For example, uh, just last year, last uh, uh, January when I was there, there's a a tea stall outside of the temple where we lead our retreat in Bodh Gaya. We lead our retreats at the temple, uh, uh, the Thai temple, the temple for Thailand there. And just outside the gate, we have a very large area, and right outside the gate is a, a tea stall. And the same man has been uh, pouring tea there for as long as I've been there, which is 15 years. And over the years, I've watched him grow older, and then his young son grew older, and he started pouring the tea. 
he's uh, 17 years old or 18 years old, and then he got married and um, had a baby last time I was there. And over the years of, of uh, going there, because there's so many Westerners, so many, this retreat that I teach, is, there's usually about 130 uh, people from Europe, from uh, America, from New Zealand, all over. Uh, Sanjay, the son, his name is Sanjay, he was able to learn some English. And so I was able to talk to him and have conversations with him uh, just in the last year in a way that I never have before. And so I was able to talk with him a little about his life. And the whole of their family's economic resources are dependent on this tea stall. And uh, a cup of tea cost one and a half cents. And how many cups of tea can people drink in a day? And so I was able to talk to him a bit, and he was telling me that I was asking him what he eats. And he told me uh, he lives with his father and his mother and his sister and his wife and baby. They're all living in the same uh, house. And what the family has, they have um, a chapati or a little wheat bread for breakfast with some tea, black tea, but no milk in the tea because they can't afford the milk. And then for lunch, they will make up some white rice and some dal, the, the lentils. And that's all they have. And I said, no vegetables? He said, no, they're too expensive. We can't have vegetables. And I said, well, what about for dinner? And he said, for dinner, we have chapati and tea again, the wheat bread and the tea. And I said, that's, that's what you have? That's all you have in the day? He said, that's what we have. And that's what they sustain themselves on. And I can feel, I could feel while, I, while he was telling me this, that it's not right. It shouldn't be this way. It's not, it's not fair. It's not right. And I could feel uh, inner agitation and even some uh, anger start to arise of why is the world like this? It should be like this. He shouldn't have to suffer this way. And wanting to help in some way, but, you know, what, what can I really do for a family in this kind of situation? And this is just only one example where I have to work with my own reactivity around it. I say, things are as they are. And hopefully, without being reactive, without getting caught in, in, in self-righteous anger or my own sorrow around that, perhaps there may be the possibility that my mind will stay somewhat clear so that I can think of some way to help this person in my own way this person and his family, and, and, and perhaps the other uh, families and the other children, the other uh, 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 things that I see around the village. But if I, if I fall into states of despair, I fall into strong anger and reactivity, I don't think that I'm going to have the same resource to be able to serve, to be able to connect uh, with the situation in the way that I want to. I've learned that I have to accept things the way they are because they're happening, not because they're right. I need to accept things because they're happening. And it's only through working with keeping my mind steady that I can continue to move ahead with strength and clarity. This is the resource. This is where I can gather strength and clarity to be able to serve in the way that I want to. So this is really our practice. 
to find a way to keep steadiness, to keep focused, to pay attention, to stay connected, to use the resources that are being offered to find a way to understand our minds and these movements within our minds. What do we do? When we find ourselves getting caught in the grip of an identified mind state where we find ourselves very caught in desire, we find ourselves very caught in in aversion or anger or agitation, we find ourselves caught in dullness. Whatever Whatever the difficult mind state is, we can turn our attention towards it without judgment. And even if there is judgment, to see if there's judging of that judgment, just one place, turning towards it without judgment, to one breath, to one step, to one movement of our arm, to one taste of food, to just the simplicity of our experience that's happening, to one sensation in the body, just to that one moment experience. And it's this moment of mindful attention that has the power to free us from what can seem like in that moment a a prison, a prison of our own mind. Because in this moment, we're not believing what our mind is saying is true uh, or the only reality, but we touch something that is much more true. In a way, it's like turning a light on in a dark cave. Even if that cave hasn't had light in it for a million years, in one moment, one moment of turning the light of our awareness, that that darkness is dispelled forever. That's what we're doing. We're just turning the light of our awareness in those crevices of our mind where we haven't gone before, what we haven't seen before, to see if we can dispel that darkness that we feel held by the grip of that. I think this is really where the joy is in our practice. For a long time, I had a koan going on, for koan, a question in my own mind, where is the joy in this practice? Where is the joy in this practice? You know, there's no ritual like in Zen when, you know, we can, you know, celebrate the, the, the rituals of chanting and, and uh, 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 bowing and all the other things they have. There's, we don't have the, the horns and the bells the way they do in the Tibetan practices. We don't have the dancing like they have in the Sufi practices. We don't really even have like the ecstatic experiences of celebration like they do in the Hindu practices. It's like, it's so dry. Yeah. <laughs> They're just sitting and walking and sitting and walking. It's like, where is the joy? I can see that you're uh, <laughs> with me on this. <laughs> but the good news, <laughs> the good news is that the joy really comes when we let go 
of our demands on how life should be unfolding. And the more that we let go, the more that we get out of the way, the joy comes. The joy is what starts to bubble forth. And we lose our dependence on the conditions of life, of how things are. We, do, we become much more independent in some way. And in that independence, in that ability to be with what's happening, we find such joy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.